Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our wonderful guests today are Mary Publikova and Barry Young. Mary's calling in from Birmingham in the UK and Barry's calling in from Vancouver in Canada. So we want to welcome you both, Mary and Barry. And one of the first things that we do on our podcasts is we want to give our listeners a flavor of who you are. So share a little bit. And Mary, why don't you start? Share a little bit of your journey and give us a bit of an overview of who you are and where you're located as we begin. So Mary, take it from here. Okay. Thanks, Al. <laughs> um, yeah, my home is, as, as Jenny says, uh, uh, Birmingham, England, um, particularly the... Um, the suburb of uh, Bourneville, which has got a n- nice history, uh, sort of created by the by the Quaker family by George Cadbury to to be a, a community a, a community um, where where people have space to flourish. Um, uh, and my context within Bourneville is uh, Rohith Pavilion Church, which is one of the original sort of Cadbury-inspired buildings um, uh, set up as a community centre and has continued for um, uh, nearly 100 years as a community centre. And there's lots going on there, lots going on there. Uh, And uh, a a lot of it is a place of blessing. Um, uh, And that's where my church is located uh, and we facilitate uh, that community centre. That's great. Thank you so much. And Barry, why didn't you tell us about yourself? Yes, um, it's great to be part of this. Um, I am third-generation settler on the Musqueam territory, um, Musqueam lands, uh, known as Vancouver. Uh, my paternal grandparents uh, settled here almost 100 years ago Um, and uh, I live on uh, a neighborhood called South Camby Oak Ridge neighborhood Um, and we live right on a main artery of the city where there's probably about over 20,000 cars that travel back and forth north and south uh, in front of us um, on a daily basis. And so maybe about six or seven years ago, I took a sabbatical from what I thought was a sabbatical or a gap year from from a technology company I worked for. And uh, that one year became two years. And then my wife just said, you know, you're not going back to regular conventional work. And um, that gave me the opportunity to be more present in the neighborhood, and I, I guess I would consider myself uh, a neighborhood practitioner. I guess it kind of sounds kind of clinical, but, uh, but yeah, I really 
um, I've discovered, or at least my my wife uh, revealed to me, that uh, when I meet strangers on the street, um, and particularly in front of my house when I garden, uh, it's been life giving to me. So um, I really enjoy uh, meeting neighbors. I, I am an introvert, but uh, certainly um, when I have one on one encounters with a stranger, um, it's it's life giving. So that's. Uh, a little bit about uh, my context and sort of the busyness in terms of where we live uh, in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And you're, um, you, you live there on the, the in the in the Camby area, and then you go you go to a, a church called uh, this Granville Chapel, Chapel yes. right? Yes, I I attend a church not too far away called Granville Chapel. I've been there for about. Uh, over 30 years. I would really love to to ask Mary, because um, you said just now, you said there's lots of activity at Roheath, um, which is a church and also a, was a sports pavilion, but it wasn't always like that, was it? Can you tell us a bit how that started, that it was a dilapidated building? Is that right, when, when it was first taken over by a church? Can you tell us that story? Yes, yes, in the in the 80s. Uh, when we just started to rent the hall there, uh, the place was very run down, and um, we're in it, it's in uh, extensive grounds. Um, but they were it was sort of felt to be a, a bit of a fearful place in the neighborhood, you know, it was sort of you know used for uh drugs and um uh and tended to be the parkland was quite deserted. Uh, and the 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 main meeting room was usable for things like mothers and toddlers. So I can remember, you know, in the early days, sort of taking my my little ones there. So so there was a, a, a reasonable meeting room, but other than that, there was a a fairly bleak sports bar and sort of um, very muddy changing rooms which were not usable for anything other than so it, was, it wasn't anything remotely like a church no 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 not at all uh and we weren't uh a hundred percent welcome you know we, we 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 brought some money uh and the trust you know we were paying rent <laughs> for our for our meeting space but we we weren't a hundred percent welcome uh and because uh, I mean, I don't want to particularly get into the sort of politics of it, but but there were there was a a, a rugby club that very much felt that it owned the space, and and a church didn't really fit terribly well with the you know with that ethos or with the ethos of the of the bar actually, uh, to be honest, and how that was that was being used, um, but but we stayed in the building we continued renting uh and showed a commitment to the building uh, and to the place at what stage did you i heard that you asked the the neighbors what they wanted was there a yeah. stage where you had a survey of some sort yes that's right that came a fair bit fair bit later um i suppose one of the first kind of thresholds was when the business 
the trust that was running the building went bankrupt and out of desperation, um, Bourneville Village Trust, who were the leaseholders, asked if we would manage the building. So that was a step up in terms of uh, uh, of trust. Um, so we were already kind of it's moving into the building, and that took a while. Um, uh, and then, yeah, some students, uh, a student organization became connected to us for a while. They wanted some project work. We set them, we, we gave them a survey uh, to do, to take out into the neighborhood, to ask the neighbors what, how they would like us to develop uh, Rohith Pavilion. Um, and the very strong answer that came back was that, that people wanted a children's playground uh, and they wanted a cafe. Um, we built up uh, a stronger um, community connection. Then there was a, a, a sort of a, a local community um, organization connected with a nearby primary school and working with them, um, we fundraised for a, a, a playground, a, a, a little children's playground, um, and got the money and working with them. Uh, we dug the playground together. Uh, and that was a that was a lovely thing. Um, so this, be... this is interesting, and this is the story of a church growing, but actually you're talking about digging a playground together, you're talking about yeah, building yeah. trust over a long period of time, very patiently. And then what happened after the playground was built? Well, the, the other thing that had come back was um, a request for a cafe. Well, there was a sort of, you know, fairly grim um, meeting room um, and we'd already had a vague go at turning it into a cafe, but without a huge amount of sort of, you know, energy or investment, um, uh, you know, a, a tea urn and a formica table kind of thing. <laughs> um, but but we'd got more, I suppose we'd got more energy and, and hope now. Um, we managed to acquire some proper cafe kit um, with... Um, picked up secondhand uh tables and chairs uh and i just can i can remember the most sort of glorious fun that we had um sort of painting the chairs you know and 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 working together when you say together do you mean you'd invited some of the neighbors to help um on that occasion it was um mostly church and kind of you know close connections so so working on the cafe uh that wasn't so explicitly um uh neighbors or or, or a sort of beyond church community i remember it mostly as as church although obviously from the early days of roheath because it's a community centre where quite a lot goes on with a bar, and we still have a bar, uh, you know, there's bar staff, there's 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 other people um, at work making the place run. So they were involved from the beginning, and that wasn't that all took us a little bit beyond the church community. So, so bring us right up to the present. It, 
from being a dilapidated building, I I hear there's now something like over 2,000 people moving through that building every week. And give us a flavour of the, your prayer practices. I mean, when we talk about church, what does that look like for you? Uh, well, Sunday, Sunday obviously is the sort of you know for us is a is a still the main gathering time and there's a there's a congregation that that meets on a sunday morning sometimes sometimes we meet outside uh and then um uh, at the moment we have um uh evening prayer meeting um we have um uh midweek communion um that's sort of wednesday lunchtime um using a northumbria community sort of liturgical form and we sit around a table uh we we share bread and wine uh and then we share bread and hummus <laughs> i take a loaf <laughs> i take a loaf and um we have wine and a, and a pot of hummus so the kind of communion spreads out uh into a meal um so I, in terms of prayer explicit prayer those are the uh, other than an occasional prayer meeting perhaps um, we can dig into that a bit more later on yeah should yeah, we, yeah should we hear from barry now what what what's going on in your head as you're listening to mary is there a story that that you've been involved with that resonates well, I just wonder, Barry, uh, as, as you're going to do that, uh, Mary's describing how things got started and inside of which there's going to be some stories. But how did things get started for you? Um, you you're, you're standing there at your house, all these cars going by, and what happens? Yeah, so maybe just going back to how both uh, myself and my wife got involved uh, into knowing our neighbors. And so it was about 2012 that uh, some friends of ours had shared with us that they had a Christmas party at their house for their neighbors. And uh, a couple of the neighbors uh, that were present at this party had been living there in the neighborhood for about 30 years. And I, I don't think this is unusual to hear, but it's just kind of striking because these two neighbors didn't know each other, although they lived beside each other for 30 years. And it wasn't until our friends invited all the neighbors into their house that they connected and made a connection. And so when we heard that story, Joan and I were like, we, we, we looked at each other. They were sharing this uh, at church. We looked at each other, and at that time, we had already been living in our in our house in our neighborhood for ten years, and we can only there was only two neighbors that we knew the names of after living ten years. So we thought this story, this is us. Like we don't know our neighbors, and then shortly after that, there was a uh, someone who who shared about um, at church about um, a report about how loneliness is one of the biggest social issues in the city, really in any big city. Um, and uh, of course, in the UK, you've had the Minister of Loneliness that was appointed not too long ago. And so it wasn't 
hunger. It wasn't uh, any of the other social maladies in our society. It was loneliness that was like a big issue. And um, we thought about that and realized that, you know, we are so isolated from our next door neighbors. We live such a siloed life in terms of um, going to our affinity groups. So I would go across town to go, for example, play volleyball. I would go, you know, down to Richmond to go shopping. And there was nothing about the local area which we, you know, really participated. I mean, just a few things. And and when we did that, we would get into our car to go, even though we could walk. So from that point on, we kind of like, let's, how are we going to make these changes? How are we going to make these shifts to get to know our neighbors? It's especially when Jesus tells us like, you know, the, the, what are the greatest commandments? Well, love God and love neighbor. And so we, th we thought, how do we love our neighbors when we don't even know their names? And so that's kind of how it all started. We had a, a Christmas party um, as well uh, the, the following year after we had heard about this. And um, we invited all our neighbors that shared the lane with us, about 20 houses. I mail slotted invitations in various languages. There's, there is a diversity in our neighborhood. And lots of wine, lots of cheese and crackers and hummus. Um, and um, only two people showed up. And it was the two people that we knew. And we were like, I was indignant. I'm like, what, what? We're putting on this, this spread and inviting people into our home. Come on. And so, but only two showed up. And it was the two that we knew. And we didn't know them well, but they stayed till like midnight. And we got to know them very well. And then we, you know, Joan and I, we debriefed. And we realized that would I go into someone's, a stranger's home? You know, like, are they selling something? What's going on here? And just, just sort of the the maybe the um the posture of fear or suspicion that we have in the city and so what we set out to do the following spring after christmas was to go for walks to greet our neighbors when we saw them like just to either nod or say hello uh, if there was a chance to make introductions take off our sunglasses take off our earphones and just be present with when we connected with people on the street and um, and then the other thing you mentioned earlier, Ellen, about the garden, um, I just felt this compulsion, this prompting to build a garden, like a boxed uh, raised garden bed in the front of our house, which is really subversive in our neighborhood. There's usually hedges and fences and really no one lives in the front of their house because the street is so busy. And and uh, so I reluctantly started building this garden box. And really, in hindsight, I just felt it was the spirit prompting me, you need to build this, you know. And, uh, um, and as I was building it, uh, people were curious. And it, it exposed me to all the foot traffic that was in front of our house because we really lived through the, our garage into our back, uh, you know, uh, basement door. We rarely went through the front of the house. And um, I discovered so many people, they were curious, what are you building here? Oh, I'm building a vegetable garden. Um, and uh, they were saying, well, you know, people are gonna take your vegetables. 
And I, that's the point. Like, this is for you. We have lots of garden in the back and we, you know, we have lots of food in the back. This is for our neighbors. And um, slowly I connected with people and uh, the following spring, we thought, well, let's not have a house party. Let's have an outdoor barbecue in the back. And this time when I went to invite neighbors, I knocked on their door and I said, hi, I'm, you know, again, I mentioned I'm an introvert. So, uh, but, but I, I, I took the risk and I started to introduce myself, gave them the invitation and then said, oh, we're the house with the garden in the back. And then right away they knew, oh, the house with the garden. And so um, there was this familiarity or this identity in terms of who we were already when we met some of the the neighbors. And the, the, the barbecue, there was about 20, 25 people that came and uh, some of them got to meet each other for the first time. We got to meet a lot of them for the first time. And that's kind of the, the beginning of our journey into getting to know the names uh, and, and, and the characteristics and really get to, to get to know our neighbors so that we can eventually learn to love them. That's a really wonderful story, Barry. Is there, is there a passage from scripture or something that um, resonates with you around what you've done here? I, I'm really struck by the fact that you're an introvert and you've put yourself in quite an awkward position to do this and you felt driven to do it. You know, I really, I mean, my, my reference is really um, um, when the, uh, the teacher of the law asked Jesus, you know, what, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies and says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so um, for, for us, for me, it's so tangible when you try and learn to love your neighbor that you're loving God. Because God, I like, who's God? I mean, it's, it's he's so expansive and immense. Like, how do you love God? But with someone as, you know, uh, that is very tangible to you, that's blood, flesh and blood uh, on your sidewalk, you can say, ah, if, I'm, if I'm loving this person, am I loving God? Yeah, I think so. So I think that's uh, how I um, try to approach this in terms of those commandments is it's, it's um, you know, if you, if you can't love your neighbor, then how can you love God? There's something about place as well, isn't there, that you're, you're talking about. You've actually created what, what we might call a place of communion. On the sidewalk, in front of your yes. house. Yes, I mean, I I really view. Um, I mean, I wish I could just flip <clears throat> my computer around because I'm looking at my garden in the front right now. I started with one garden box, and now there's about five or six garden boxes, and uh, um, we've we've um, over the years taken down the hedges. We've created canopies and lifted up the trees so that we can actually see the sidewalk from our window and we've created this sort of a sort of a fire pit in the front of our house where we gather and in the summer days we we sit there read or whatever and people are walking by and there have been times where people just curious and like oh and and um what are you doing and we invite them to just sit with us random strangers and uh and that's Again, that's a subversive act, and there are people that are very curious. You know, why are you out in the front? And this is a busy street. And but um, I think it is a sacred space in, in in the front of our house. We have a little 
uh, one of those free little library boxes that we've we've uh, installed in there. And we uh, about a year ago, my wife asked me to build a little free little art gallery where people put their little pieces of art there and take art, make art, share art. And um, it, is, it has become a, a, a place of, of communion, of community. Um, and, um, you know, especially with all the different vegetables that are growing there and the flowers, people, and, and another thing, people don't know where their food comes from. So if we're growing garlic right now and they go, isn't that corn? No, 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 that's garlic. And um, we'll be harvesting them in about three weeks time. And we've asked some of the neighbors who are curious, like when we harvest, you can come and help us. So um, it, it is a, a, a connection spot for sure. I'm I'm t I'm taken by your your sense, Barry, of this call to love the neighbor, and uh, I want to turn it back to Mary because things began to happen. If I, if I understand the Rohit story, you you had a cafe and other things, uh, and out of that cafe or around that cafe. Uh, something else began to emerge. This this little gathering. Um, I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about that because I think I think it's very very uh, parallel to Barry's sense of how do we love our neighbors. Um, and you began to do that with the cafe, but something else began to come out of that. Could share a little bit of that yeah. story? Yeah, sure. I mean, it kind of competed with the cafe <laughs> in, in, in actual fact <laughs> um yeah uh, we just in, in in a sense it started a, a, a little bit in the way that you've described uh barry and that there was a a small room in uh in roheath pavilion uh and we started just having a a drop in there um, but but uh, using the label um, "Place of Welcome," which is a, a movement that started in well, it started in Birmingham actually, and it's all over uh, the UK now. Um, sort of about six hundred or so places of welcome uh, across England, um, anyway. Um, uh, and so we started a place of welcome that seemed like that was a formula that that resonated with us um uh and in, in initially in this sort of small room you know there'd be kind of just five or six five or six people and most of them were the volunteers we we started off with a with a little team of uh, of volunteers who could make this happen um uh, uh and then uh, uh over time um uh it built up so that was about that was about um almost 5 years ago it'll be 5 years ago in september um uh and then eventually the room became the small room became quite crowded um and we used to do things like um take a tray of cakes and uh, and drinks in paper cups out around the park and uh, and just offer people some some cake and a uh, and a free coffee and 
um, tell them about what was going on. Uh, uh, and of course, you know, it, it was, you know, becoming a thriving community center um, in, in, in other areas. There were other things happening. And uh, one of the things was that there's a, a quite a strong fisherman's club. There's a, there's a pond, a fishing pond in the grounds. So there's a, a group of, uh, of fishermen who use that. Uh, and they're a lovely group because they really look after each other and sort of, you know, when somebody's fragile in the group, they really they, they really look after one another. And they became, as a group, they became connected with the place of welcome. So they would kind of troop in, <laughs> have a coffee, <laughs> and then troop out again. But the relationship um, started to build. Uh, COVID came along, uh, and we did all sorts of things. You know, we met in a mark um, in gazebos in the grounds, as everybody did. We sort of struggled, struggled through that in in various different ways. Um, uh, but at the end of COVID, it still wasn't. It didn't feel appropriate to try and push that number of people into that small room, um, uh, and it was felt to be possible. Um, for us to have the main hall. So we've spread out into the main hall now, which has meant that we've had room for a greater number. Um, and we we have we've experimenting different ways of doing this so that it really draws people into community. Because it could become a free cafe, you know, uh, especially in the main hall um because there's a lot of space uh so we have about uh six uh, very large tables six or seven very large tables um set up with with different activities uh and try and do things that um draws everybody together uh, and find ways that the people that have started to come, the people that um, have settled, um, sort of draw on their on their gifts. Um, somebody uh, had just learned how to use their air fryer, so they so they brought uh, an air fryer along, and we had a session where they showed. Um, showed us how to use an air fryer and, you know, we cooked some sausages together. Um, some um, Hong Kong uh, immigrants had joined us. So they gave us a talk on Hong Kong culture uh, and gave us some Hong Kong eggs. <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a guy who likes to write poetry and um he's he's quite a he's quite a quiet guy he's quite timid uh but we um we ask him to read uh a poem for us uh reasonably regularly um the the the, the best one that i still really enjoy remembering is is the guy with uh, with learning disabilities who was learning uh, electric guitar, uh, and he gave us a music recital, uh, and I just remember the look on everybody's face when this music recital started. Um, 
but you know we gave him a round of applause uh, and and it was just lovely <laughs> um to see that happen uh and and to see what it did to the group to be honoring one another it was partly about him but it was partly about what happened to the whole group uh as we honored one another for different gifts so this is not a place where sort of christian professionals are doing things for people it's it's a it's a different kind of ethos yes um you know the 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 truth is that you know those of us who are kind of formally volunteers are you know couldn't possibly make the thing happen you sort of you know competent people in the in the group roll up their sleeves and um uh, uh you know help help make things happen um and uh you know start to sort of take ownership uh in in different ways um which has been a lovely thing to watch I'm really struck by what you've both described something that's very close to the idea of of Sabbath. And and Barry, you initially used the word sabbatical, and obviously that's connected with with Sabbath and Shabbat. And it feels to me like you're both creating kind of holy spaces, kind of free of um, the mediation of digital life, modern life, you you said it was sort of transgressive, Barry. Both of you are doing something that's um, so countercultural, and you're you're creating a space where things can happen, but you're not programmatizing it, you're not prescribing it, you're enabling it, and that's quite different. I'm very struck that sometimes you know people in the churches are very keen to do outreach and to try and reach their neighbors and they come up with all kinds of projects and so on but you haven't done that you've you've just kind of done your thing quietly and really patiently it's about waiting isn't it sort of waiting for god waiting for people to find their time find their place i sense a real sense of patience in what you've done i i honestly uh this patience that you talk about has been cultivated over the last 10 years because working in the tech field with quotas and agendas and meetings and planning, it took me about two years after I left work to kind of deprogram from from all of that. I mean, I certainly still, even today, think, oh, I'm going to do this, but really usually where the work happens is when you drop your agendas. And um, even when when we embarked on this idea of learning to love our neighbors, we pulled back from a lot of church activities. I mean, we attend church, but, you know, we were so involved in life groups, home groups, prayer meetings, um, all these sort of things that would take up a few days or one or two days more than the Sunday during the week. And it just didn't give us time to be present in our neighborhood. So we pulled back and, you know, even to this day, I'm not involved as much in some of the 
church activities at Granville Chapel. Um, I, I love the people there, um, but this has been sort of a, a, a way for me to really, um, like I said, it's been very life-giving. And not only that, but it's more about how my encounter with my neighbors, with the stranger, is forming me rather than, I mean, I don't think of it as I'm going up there, I want to change my neighbors. No, I'm realizing in the last two years that the, the encounter that I have with them, they're changing me. And, you know, I might reflect on, well, why am I sort of irritated by that one particular neighbor? And there's this self-reflection, like, come on, Barry, like, just suck it up. Like, be, you know, why are you being that way? And so I find that I'm being more uh, transformed by this encounter with a stranger. And again, I see uh, each of my neighbors uh, made in the image of God. And so that little piece of image that they're carrying with them, that DNA that they're carrying with them is somehow having an effect on me. So, um, and, and, and so I, I do believe it's, there's, there's a mutuality in that. Hopefully the Christ in me is reflecting the love to them as well, but um, right, I don't think about it as as much as how they're they've been transforming me over the last, like I said, in the, in the past couple of years. So it's, I can feel my my brain uh, going in this direction. So what you've just described, you know, having to resist the agenda brain, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you were so deeply formed in, that our yes. culture is so steeped in. And I can't help but think, I've got to say it, you know, does this lead to people going to church, right? And I'm wondering, is that, it seems like it's not actually the right question here, but I know that some of our listeners will be, well, thinking, well, what's the outcome? Because that's the question that the the modern world is always forcing us to ask. Whereas actually I can hear from what you're saying, you've demonstrated the outcome in very beautiful terms. And it's actually exactly what, for example, Pope Francis is asking for in the culture of encounter. That's that's what he's talking about when he says we want a culture of encounter. And he's talking about fraternity and civic friendship people living in relationship and mutuality with each other. But often those kinds of pieces of language can become abstract when people don't know what it actually looks like, but you've described to us what it's like. But I still want to ask you that difficult question. Does it does it matter? And has there been any, you know, conversations with people about God or about the Holy Spirit? Have have these encounters led, I mean, do you pray for people? You know, questions like that. Yes. I've got to put those to you. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, uh, in, in particular, like the comment about that mindset. Well, so are you bringing these people to church? No, that's not the point. Um, if they ask, certainly. Um, in fact, uh, back in November, I was asked to speak at our church, Granville Chapel, and there's a community up at the park, a Tai Chi community that I'm a part of, um, that knew that I wasn't going to be there that morning because I was speaking at church. And they, some of them said, and actually, I had a, a story about one of the participants, or the, at least the participant's husband, who's in, who's a neighbor. And a few of them said, oh, can we come and listen? And in fact, I said, no, I don't think you want to come because I just, <laughs> uh, just, so I, I actually uh, was reluctant to have them come just because, 
it's different and trying to manage them and explain to them because I was speaking. But I said, however, it is being recorded. So if you are interested to hear what I have to say, I'll send it to you. And let me tell you, I, I did that. And then <laughs> I sent it just one person who was interested. And then she sent it to other people. And it went viral within this group, this community of 30, 40 people. And so, yeah, so, uh, but, but I guess to your, to your point, uh, your question about, you know, well, what, what is the result? What, what do you do? And I think for me, um, it's having these relationships and um, building a trust that, Mary, you talked about in terms of your, your work in Birmingham to develop this trust so that they can, are willing or interested in asking, you know, about spiritual things. And um, another story, last winter, as the weather got colder, um, they, they know, uh, many of them know that I go to church. And so rather than going to the park, which is out uh, and the Tai Chi is outdoors, this Tai Chi community, they didn't want to go up there because it was slippery. It might be cold and they didn't want to go out in the cold. They asked me, Barry, do you know of a place, a church or something that would take us in in the morning so that we could practice? I talked to a few churches, some couldn't for, you know, various, uh, you know, logistical reasons. And then one neighborhood church that has always, always been so supportive of the work that we do in our in our neighborhood, they're just about three blocks blocks away, an Adventist church. They said, come and see the space. We have a chapel across from the main sanctuary. That might work for you. So I went there with a couple of the members. Um, they looked at it. They looked at me and they go, this would be perfect. Like, okay, well, let's ask the pastor. Like, how much is it? You know, like, you know, because this this community is, there's, there's no fees. It's just free. It's uh. Uh, it's done out of the goodness and passion of of the teacher. She just she's there every day. She's present, and uh, the pastor said, "Oh, you know what? I'm sure the board is going to just give it to you for free, uh, and you know, under our wellness and health ministry. And um, they're they're an Adventist church, and they're very into health and wellness. And so they were over the moon, and uh, you know, we started practicing there, but." After that, yes, that it's free and you can come. Um, we went for lunch, the, the three of us, two of the members and me. And the, one of the ladies said to the teacher, who's very generous, always kind. And uh, she said to her, you're like Buddha because she's so generous. Like, and Barry, you're like Jesus. So, and, and I like, well, I'm not like Jesus, but I, you know, I want to follow him. And so there are these opportunities to share, um, you know, my faith and to share spiritual matters and to, you know, just, yeah. So I, I mean, I, does that kind of answer your question? I mean, it's, it's very open. And I think it's because there's, there's been this trust that has been established. And also I think maybe within the culture, uh, this Chinese culture, Asian culture within the Tai Chi community, they're probably much more open to talking about spiritual matters. And I'm also struck by what you've described as economy of gift. What what you've described there is what 
some people call economy of gift. The thing you said before about, um, you know, giving something for free, and now you've just described giving the the venue for free. That's just, again, so countercultural. People aren't used to this. They can't understand why something shouldn't be charged for because everything has a price nowadays. Uh-huh. But again, that's that's part of God's kingdom, isn't it? The economy of gift, yeah. the exchange of gifts. Yes, and, and, and this idea of abundance versus scarcity. There's another part of this as well where, um, as, as you were both speaking and telling stories, that one of the images that comes to my mind is how, um, in, in John's gospel, it's put so well, that God comes down, all the way down, and pitches God's tent right beside ours. And what both of you are, I think, doing in the stories that you're telling, language I would use, is you're dwelling with people. Um, you're, you're part of who they are. And, and again, it seems to me that in this the word we use, in this unraveling that's going on in our society and in our churches, that our churches particularly get anxious about how do we get more people into our small groups or how do we get more people to come on Sunday mornings and those questions, which, of course, they're measuring you by. So, Barry, how many of these people have come to church? Uh, But you're living in a different kind of narrative, which is... We dwell with our neighbors. We dwell with and create spaces with. And out of that, we listen and we discern to what the Spirit might be doing. I mean, uh, Mary, in your context, does, does, does that make sense as a description of what's going on? Um, yes, the, the, the way I was thinking of it is, is that verse that I can't quote uh, well in John chapter three the um, uh, Holy Spirit goes where it wills and nobody just like the wind nobody can tell you know where it's where it's going or where it's come from it, it kind of feels like that so as I say there's, there's a fair bit going on in Roheath and there's there's a quite a lot of staff um, you know just cleaners people working in the cafe people working in the bar running functions and things. Um, uh, and they're all part of the mix, the 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 place of welcome or what the church does. It doesn't exist in isolation. It's kind of organically connected. So so as soon as we do something that's kind of you know fairly outrageously generous, like put on a table of free food and open doors. Um, you, you know, you can see people buying in in different ways. So, so one of the cleaners, you know, makes us makes a donation of um, uh, chocolate every week. You know, he 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 hasn't managed to come into place of welcome yet because he's he's shy and he's quite reserved in conversation. But but he wants to make this donation, and and I can see other people. You know, some of the um, cafe workers um uh some of the cleaners you know they they are sort of getting involved and and it just seems to raise the generosity levels across the wider community and you you can't predict how that's going to go you see fruit 
in one place and you see things happening in another, but how those lines of connection work, you can't necessarily work out. You can't predict it and manage it. No, no. One of the, um, this podcast is called Leaving Egypt. And uh, behind that is, is the sense that as God's people in our contemporary culture, we too have been caught up in the larger cultural narrative of there's got to be a technique that makes things work. There's a, there's a method. It's, and, and so much of that is about we turn people into objects. And so uh, just I just wonder from each of you, um, in this sort of unraveling that's going on in our society and in our churches, what are you learning what 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 are you discovering and what you're up to in place of welcome on the front part of of Mary of, of your of your house and with your neighbors? What are you learning about being God's people in the midst of this unraveling? Does does that question make sense? Um, I, I'm going to respond to that um, and kind of to tie in with Mary, what you're saying about how the spirit just kind of moves and you don't know where it's going and coming. Um, the garden, the space in the front of our house, uh, my my goal, and it's it's just a goal, it's not, but I, I, I hope that it brings hope and I hope that it maximizes public joy, to coin a phrase from someone that is not my phrase, but to maximize public joy. And so, the, that idea of not being able to control the outcome is so apparent because I'm not there all the time. People walk by. People are walking by now. I can't, you know, manage anything. And so it was a few years ago that we got a little letter that was put into the, the library box. And basically it was written by a person with addiction, homeless person. I'm, 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 I'm thinking that it was. And basically she said in this letter, thank you for this little treasure I found within. Um, and it was basically a book that I guess she read as a child. And she said, I am not the person that I am. I'm losing my sense of who I am. But I've with this little library and this little book that I just found here, I'm finding out who I am again, and I'm just this heroin addicted person. And and then she said, P.S., by the way, your garden is lovely. You're my kind of people. Mm. And like my kind of people, like she's my people. We are all connected. And so my point of that is that I don't know who this person was, but she took the time in her whatever state she was in to write this note, this legible note to let us know that, you know, she found some childhood memory or joy from being there in this sacred space. And there's so many people that we don't know in terms of our action that who we're going to affect. It's the spirit. It's God that's going to do all of this. Um, and so, Alan, I don't know whether I answered your question. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Thank I just, you. Just, I, I just get a sense that we don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I just, I think I'm just trying to be faithful to learn to love my neighbor and whatever the outcome is, 
God is in it somehow. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Barry. It's very. It strikes me the kind of everything you're saying, the language you're both using. Um, we sometimes talk about the difference between covenant and contract, and what you're both describing is covenantal behavior, covenantal relationship. You're there for the long term. You're not there on conditions. You're there to love as opposed to this very thin way of relating, which is, we've become used to in the modern world, which is contractual. And yes. um, it strikes me, oh, you're transactional, yes. And That's the right. relationships you've been describing, there's no way you could boil it down to service client, you know, <laughs> the server and the served or the the user. The, you know, it, it, those pieces of language don't fit what you've been describing because what you've been describing is friendship, companionship, accompaniment, neighborliness, uh, love, loving kindness, tenderness. These these kinds of words don't fit in that contractual way of seeing the world. And I I just I just love to hear just for a moment what you both think about what on earth has happened to our world. What on earth has happened to relationships between human beings that make what you're doing so unusual you know when you when you see that woman you just described wrote that note and you know mary when you see you know people on the periphery of of roheith and perhaps you know you're wondering how they might get involved or whether they want to step over the threshold what what is it that's making that loneliness so deep now it's been going on for some time hasn't it but i think we all see that it's it's intensified for a lot of people. Mary, what do you see? Um, uh, I suppose fear, maybe. Um, uh, so wandering around Rohis, wandering around the Rohis grounds um, uh, uh, and the local roads, because I, I live close by, you know, I, I try and catch people's eye as I pass them and I try and and I try and smile, and and it's sort of strange how there, how there's so often a wall. And it's a lovely thing when somebody is surprised and they do catch your eye and uh, and smile. But but it's it, it's as though there's a shield up often uh, as you pass somebody. So I can only think that it's fear. I think sometimes it's fear that goes. Um, very deeply i think it's fear across more than one generation i think you know children are, are taught to be fearful you've got to ask the question what happened that creates a society in which people cannot meet each other's eye as they walk by it, it's it, i mean it's something profound there uh, barry what what's what your what's your thinking around that i mean mary i think yeah, we need to disrupt that, that that fear or that those walls. And I think by how, how we can shape the culture is by saying hi, by smiling, by waving at them. Um, I've seen the shift in the culture in our neighborhood over the last 10 years. And, that, and, and that's a slow burn. It's slow. It's not like I got to do it by the end of the quarter and this is what's going to, you know, it's... Uh, so what we've noticed is that people in our neighborhood are 
the neighbors know each other. They're out in the lane talking to each other when they're bringing in their garbage bins or whatever. Um, and uh, there's been a shift. People are connecting more with each other, but we need to model that. And we need people of peace to subvert what the culture is, like to keep yourself, to don't trust anyone, to have to be fearful, to be suspicious. Um, you know, I, I wrote a story about one of my neighbors. He's from China, very little English, but he says hello to everyone that he walks by. You know, the construction workers, the street uh, flaggers, um, uh, the dog walkers, everyone. And people know him that before now, when I see him walking, people are preemptive now to say hi to him because they know that he's going to be saying <laughs> hi to them. And so he's been a great reminder to me to continue to do that because sometimes you know, I'll just get into a, you know, I, I kind of forget like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too occupied with other things. But um, but he was a, he's been a good reminder to continue to do those little things to disrupt the narrative of what is quite apparent in, in, in our cities. What's interesting is both of you, uh, you know, you're, you're dwelling with people, um, but you're pretty clear. Like Barry, this is, this is a 10-year space of dwelling. This doesn't happen miraculously no. over, you know, a three-week or six months. And Mary... Um, I can't quite remember when Place of Welcome began, but it's, a, it's about that time length that, that this is a deep mm -hmm. investment in place and people over time. Mm, five years, five years. We're on five years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you mentioned that too, that this whole sort of, th this is a long game. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was a church planter at one point, um, he preaches at a church once a month, sort of semi-retired, I guess. But, you know, I, I have a chat with him every so often. <clears throat> and he said to me, you know, Barry, in particular, this community at the park, these Tai Chi practitioners who are all elderly, uh, retired, like, this is a long game, Barry. Like, when they start to age, you know, their health, they, they, their health issues creep in, their spouses, their partners die and stuff you're going to be facing certain things that you probably didn't think you would be facing because, you know, if you continue in the, in this tract of this trust and these friendships and relationships, something's going to come of that, you know? So I mean, I don't know what, I mean, he pointed that out to me. It's the long game. So 15, 20 years from now, a lot of these people will have passed on. And so I don't know what that's going to look like, but, um, it, it's it's the long game, and it's not about you know flipping the switch and telling them to come to church and filling the pews, you know, by the end of the month. Yeah, I love it. I, I'd yeah. like to know what what sustains both of you. So I, I know that um, Mary's part of the Northumbria community, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you Would yeah. you like to tell us just something about your rhythm and your your practice? Uh, we're we're interested in. You know what? What keeps people like you so faithful and so patient and so your the surrender that you show, the surrender to God in your life is so so remarkable. It's so clear 
just see that and it's a very beautiful thing and there there must be particular practices or ways of life rhythms of life that you that you love that that keep you true in that way um yes i mean the um the northumbria community has a has a, a rule availability and vulnerability um the core of it um the starting point for me in availability is availability to god in the in the cell uh, uh, of my own heart <laughs> your own heart so so there's something in, in, important to me about about a, a, a rhythm of of prayer um uh i mean northumbria community has sort of morning prayer midday prayer uh, and uh, and evening prayer uh and uh, and some of that yeah it's it, it's taking time um to to hang around with god i guess it's the same it's the same willingness to waste time with god as as uh, you know we're we're learning to do with people if you see what i mean to just to just be with um so so to give time to that and let that be the core um because otherwise it could just become as programmatic as anything else and i i feel that in myself you know on a on a friday morning you know i can feel myself you know, looking worriedly around the room and wanting to kind of tick the boxes in the room, you know, and to sort of bring it back to what what God's doing first. And I can only do that if I've spent some decent chunks of time hanging around with God. Uh, yeah. And what about you, Barry? Yeah, I... I need to be more disciplined, um, but I, I certainly, I mean, recently um, there have been neighbors that have had certain health issues with their children. Um, and I mean, and I, again, I don't want to paint a picture that everything's, you know, like Sesame Street and everything's Kumbaya, everything's fine. I mean, there are definitely struggles in the neighborhood, certain people in the neighborhood that are challenging to deal with. Um, but what, so I am, it was during the pandemic that I started this Tai Chi, started with this Tai Chi community that were already there. And, um, as I practice, I do, we're, we're looking at beautiful trees and the skyline and I am in awe of the creation of where we live. And I do pray for uh, the neighbors. Now that I'm a little bit more proficient in the movements and not thinking about it so much, the Tai Chi movements, I can start praying for uh, specific things during that time. Um, I think in terms of rhythms, um, there are things that have um, been established within our neighborhood, has nothing to do with me. For example, the uh, Vancouver International Marathon. These are things that I look forward to and that I organized to bring more people to participate in. But it's just something that God is already doing in the neighborhood, and I just kind of join in. But I think bottom line is, as I mentioned earlier, when I am meeting one-on-one -on -one with people, maybe for the first time, 
somehow that just gives me uh, life. It's it's life giving, and so I continue to do that. And you know, every so often during the winter months when I'm not out so much, it's a little bit harder. But um, yeah, I think meeting the stranger has been quite life giving for me. When you when you said um, when, when God's already doing something in the neighborhood, how do you both um, discern what's of God and what isn't of God in your in your own mind and in what you see around you? Because some there can be a lot of positive things happening that might not necessarily be of God. I'm really interested to know how you sense that. I, I just believe that God is in control of all things, and um, you know, unless it's sort of a um, uh, something nefarious to do with drugs or some some sort of criminal activity, I I just think that when people gather to celebrate, I think that's of God. I think when the the marathon comes through by our neighborhood, we're at mile one, and people are cheering and people are gathering to encourage these runners, I think that's of God. Um, the Tai Chi community that's been there for decades, uh, when I see the leader, um, when someone's away or someone has hurt themselves, she will be very pastoral and bring food to them or call them and see how they're doing. I think that's of God. So, um, and, and it's not, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't, yeah, maybe I need more discerning, but I, but that, that's kind of how I view some of these things. How about you, Mary? Um, I'm sure I, you know, don't know that I would always get it, get it right, uh, of course. Uh, but, but I suppose where I'm placed, I'm, I'm looking for things that sort of interconnect, if you see what I mean. So if there's a, if there's a good project over there that I'm attracted to, but I can't see any way that, that it would kind of connect organically with, um, this, this thing that I'm part of, uh, which is, you know, um, Rohith, I suppose, Rohith wider community, the wider communities that kind of branch off from it, our local, our local streets. Um, so that would be part of it, you know. For for myself, uh, I feel drawn towards things that connect with that. I think, um, uh, and other than that, I suppose you know perhaps the word connection you know th you know things that that connect people mm. another way of describing it might be a common good you you you're talking about people it's very much to do with the connection between human beings isn't it mm. so it's fundamentally about relationship yeah and i you know i feel that's well that's how we're made isn't it we're made in the image of god who is fundamentally relational and and that's why it's so damaging for us to be isolated. It's really not the way human beings were designed to live. Yeah. So what, what you're doing is is showing that. And that begins to respond to the question, how do you know it's got at work, is that it's only as we're deeply embedded in relationships and the trust of relationships, that's what gives us the space to test and to try and to see uh, it's it's not sort of a 
hiding away individual decision-making. It's that relational connect uh, to your point of what is the common good here? Uh, what, it, what is calling us and drawing us relationally? And, you know, Barry, you, you, you were pointing that out. You were saying, where I see people gathering and sharing, where I see this, God is there. I think that's a wonderful place to leave the conversation. We, we've absolutely loved this. Thank you so much, Barry and Mary, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely to be part of. It has been a real privilege to just listen in to the grounded ways you're engaged with people. So thank you both. And uh, keep at it. It's great. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, Please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts and we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon. Mm-hmm.